The field of business ethics emerged in the 1970s, or rather it formally arrived in its modern incarnation in the 1970s. This concept actually harkens back at least 2,000 years when it was addressed in a book called The Tirakirol from the writer Tiravolavar, who was Tamil, an ethnic group that at the time lived on the Indian subcontinent. The concept of business ethics became necessary in the modern world because of the emergence and evolution and expansion of corporations, and their increasingly important place in the interconnected global economic ecosystem. Corporations have many of the same rights as individual human beings, and yet they potentially also wield massively more power than any one person, as they are, in a sense, made up of many people and all the resources produced by those people. Those who run such businesses have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders, meaning that their prime directive is to earn more money for those who have invested in the corporation, for the shareholders. This can and has led to a great deal of ethical turmoil for those involved in the businesses and for those on the receiving end of their actions. Slavery, colonialism, and economically catalyzed and sustained militarism are all practices that have been enthusiastically supported and amplified by businesses. And though many of these practices have changed or even essentially disappeared over the years, they've been replaced by other concerns. And in any case, their disappearance generally hasn't been the consequence of a shift in the numbers underpinning their business model, but rather a change in culture in the people who make up the business. It's generally been culturally normative non-business ethics that seep into the business that cause these shifts, and sometimes they occur later than might be ideal, and face off against great opposition from the forces that be within the business and the business-loyal employees. The discussion around business ethics, then, is important because it's a discussion about whether or not businesses, and especially corporations, should have directives beyond simply earning as much money as is feasible within the current cultural and legal system. Should businesses go full throttle in pursuit of every buck they can make, regardless of the larger consequences of their actions, so long as those actions are allowed by law? Or should there be a dampener on that motivation, something that allows those involved to step back and ask, okay, is this a horrible, inhuman thing to do? Economists like Milton Friedman think that any such limits are anathema to the idea of a free market. And business consultant Peter Drucker believes that there's already sufficient seepage from human ethics into business ethics so that we don't need a separate set of rules and guidelines to help business people and those who work for them make these decisions. Many other economists and business people disagree with these assertions, though, which has led to an increased and increasing number of businesses defining and attempting to live in accordance with corporate social responsibility guidelines. Essentially rules that say their business should be ethical, and that those ethics should align with those of a responsible citizen within the community in which they operate even if that sometimes means not pursuing every dollar as a trade-off. This concept essentially means that businesses are recognizing that there might be considerations for businesses in the realm of ethics that wouldn't be relevant to human beings making the same decisions or put in the same position. In the decades since, a lot of businesses have flogged these CSR guidelines as promotional tools, allowing their ethics, or implied ethics, to help spur sales and making these ideologies part of their larger branding efforts. Buy from us because we believe we shouldn't destroy the planet by polluting it to death. Buy from us because we treat our workers well and produce our garments locally. Buy from us because we believe, like you believe, that a healthy lifestyle is important and worth investing in. In a lot of cases, these guidelines have resulted in what seem to be overall better practices by these corporations better, in this case, defined by their performance as ethical entities, as defined by the cultural norms of their location and time period, rather than better in the sense of earning every possible dollar. It's easy to become skeptical about these claims, though, and even become a little jaded by them, 
especially in the cases where the companies in question talk a big game about their supposed ethics, only to demonstrate through their larger, behind-closed-doors actions that they are actually something different than they purport to be, perhaps even the polar opposite of what they claim to be. Dove, for instance, is a brand that makes soaps and lotions and related products, primarily for women, and they ran a series of ads in the early 2000s that celebrated women of all shapes, sizes, and colors as part of their Campaign for Real Beauty promotion. This series of advertisements and promotions received all kinds of accolades and had a generally inspirational and accepting tone that went over really well with their intended audience. At the same time those ads were running, however, the parent company of Dove, Unilever, was also running ads for their Axe brand of men's deodorants that were different. They often featured a young man spraying himself with Axe body spray, which would lead to scantily clad model-esque women animalistically hurling themselves at that young man, typically while licking their lips or grabbing themselves or taking off their clothing, or otherwise acting salaciously. The contrast here is more than evident, and Unilever caught some flack for running these campaigns simultaneously, not just because of the relative tastelessness of the Axe ads, they were clearly trying to appeal to two very different audiences, but because with the Dove ads, they were positioning themselves as a body-positive, women-supporting corporation, while at the same time they were promoting the exact opposite ideology in the background in order to sell to a different group. This was the problem, in other words, because they were attempting to appear as if they believed in something and stood for certain ideals, but in reality, they were merely using the language and talking points of that belief, of those ideals, of that movement, to sell more product. Their ethics were skin deep, ironically, because of the product category in question. It was all just surface-level ideology that helped them blend in with the human beings who actually believed these things on a deeper level, and that implied hypocrisy, which did not go over very well with the humans who had been tricked. What I want to talk about today is related to business and ethics, though in a somewhat different way, and with tendrils that also reach out into the world of politics and journalism, and which eventually, more fundamentally, requires that we ask ourselves a whole lot of questions if we are going to alleviate some of the downsides inherent in how we approach this topic. Today, I want to talk about conflicts of interest. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Let's Know Things is a listener-supported show, which means that it is brought to you by you. This is actually episode 50 of the show, if you can believe it. Almost a year in since the very first episode was produced. A huge thanks to everyone who has helped me continue to produce this, that I can afford to take the time to do this each week is because of people like you who help contribute to the perpetuation and propagation of this show. If you're digging what I'm doing here and you'd like to contribute, you can go to letsnotethings.com and click on the contribute page. You can also pop by iTunes and leave a review there or share the show with a friend. Any and all efforts of this kind are very much appreciated. I'm glad there are people out there who are willing to geek out about this stuff in the same way that I am. Another great way to help support the show and my work in general is to check out the books that I've written. If you go to colin.io, that's Colin with one L, you can find a list of my books including a brand new book that came out on May 1st, entitled Becoming Who We Need to Be, which, if you enjoy this podcast, chances are you'll enjoy this book. It's about the challenges that we face as societies and individuals and what we can do to iterate and grow and prepare ourselves to face these challenges. And then one more possible mechanism of support is checking out our sponsors. If you're looking for hosting services, the hosting company that I use and love is called HostGator. If you go to hostgator.com LKT, not only will you be helping out the show, but you will get a substantial discount on their already very reasonable prices. And if you go to audibletrial.com LKT, you will receive a free month trial of Audible and a free audiobook of your choice from their massive collection. And that includes the aforementioned books that I've written, including Becoming Who We Need to Be 
but they do have something like 200,000 books in their collection, so chances are there is something there that you will enjoy. And if you don't have a book in mind that you might want to spend that credit on, stick around to the end of the episode and I will recommend a book for you to check out. All right, let's get back to the show. In late April of 2017, the news began to spread that former U.S. President Barack Obama would be giving a talk at a Wall Street conference for which he'd earn $400,000, which is essentially what a U.S. president earns each year as a salary. The piece I want to start from here is on that topic about this talk. It's from the Washington Post, and it's entitled, Sanders and Warren are criticizing Obama's $400,000 Wall Street speech. Here's why it's a bad idea. And this article is actually a news analysis piece, and it works through some of the reasons that the Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren facet of the Democratic Party, which is the facet that's further left than more center-left Clintons and Obamas that happen to be in the party, are criticizing Obama's decision to give this talk. And one of the main reasons given is that simply knowing that the opportunity to give such talks is on the table and that it is a legal option, that it's okay, it's not illegal for former presidents to give talks to whatever groups they might want to give talks to and for however much money they might want to give those talks for, that knowledge could retroactively color the choices that they made while in the White House. An example given in this article is that Obama never really came down too hard on Wall Street in the way that some people in his party wanted him to. And it could be argued, though there's no evidence for this as far as I'm aware, that he failed to place more limitations on Wall Street because he knew there would be money waiting for him once he left office, so long as he didn't make any decisions that really screwed over the Wall Street people who could give him that payday while he had the power to do so. Again, there's no evidence-based reason to believe that this is the case, but the perception alone, it's argued, is harmful. And there's always the chance that such a choice could be made subconsciously or could slant an otherwise 50-50 choice in favor of those who have the cash that they might give you later if you decide in their favor. There are rules in place that try to prevent employees of politicians, like political aides and assistants, from lobbying for a period after their employment. And this is meant to dissuade them from making choices while working in those positions that favor a particular lobby or group with the expectation of a payout after leaving their current job. But these rules do very little to stifle the same quid pro quo possibilities in the politicians themselves. There's what's known as a revolving door relationship between many contractors and legislators, meaning that a politician will finish their term in office and then jump right into a new job with one of the companies for which they were once making the rules. There are some limits in place for these situations, but in general, they're fairly lax. You maybe wait a year after leaving your political job before joining one of the companies that you were legislating or you create a new department or affiliate that's legally separate from the main company, technically, and then work there, even if it's not actually separate from it in any meaningful and practical way. Now, tellingly, even that flimsy one-year limitation doesn't apply to many high-level politicians. Former Vice President Dick Cheney, for instance, was Secretary of Defense under George Bush Sr., and during his stint in that position, he led an effort to privatize the military, paying out about $9 million to a company called Brown and Root Industrial Services to outline how it might be feasible to bring in private contractors to help the U.S. military in its war efforts. Three years later, in 1995, when Bill Clinton was in office, Cheney became the CEO of Halliburton Company, which is an oil services giant out of Texas that, it just so happens, owns Brown and Root Industrial Services, the company to which Cheney gave that massive R&D contract. There's a piece from 2000 that was published in Mother Jones magazine about that relationship, which was a minor scandal at the time. But those of us who remember 
9-11 and the subsequent war in Iraq, the beginning of the war in Iraq, maybe I should say, might also remember that Cheney's relationship with that corporation went even further than that. Cheney ended up as vice president under George W. Bush, and Halliburton ended up with a stunningly huge number of governmental contracts under that administration. Now, when questioned, Cheney claimed to have severed all of his ties to Halliburton when he became VP, so that, he said, there would be no way it could be a conflict of interest. The Congressional Research Service, though, begged to differ, and found that he still retained unexercised stock options in the company, and continued to collect a deferred salary, though it was a relative pittance compared to what he was making from them previously, only a few million dollars per year. He was also given $34 million by Halliburton on his way out the door when he quit his job at the company to become the United States vice presidential candidate alongside Bush, which, I mean, it looks bad, right? Let's be honest. He's leaving this company that thrives on government contracts to potentially become the vice president. He's going to be, quite possibly, in a position of influence. And a few years later, There is a war that a lot of people on both sides of the political spectrum believe wasn't necessary, or which was politically motivated rather than militarily prudent. And the company that essentially ran that war, that got all of the contracts without having to bid for them, was Halliburton, the company that made that big out-the-door payout and retained some connections, even if they deny that there was any connection, to Cheney. At a certain point, these types of payouts begin to look more like investments. Combine all of that with Cheney's earlier activities, earning his employer millions to work out the details of how the U.S. military might be privatized, and you can't help but see Cheney as a masterful, long-game player, or at the very least a cunning denizen of the revolving door. But, and this is a very important but, how do you prove something like that? How can you show with any certitude the cause and effect here? There are other explanations for what transpired here. There are, for instance, arguments that privatizing aspects of the military, like cooking food for soldiers and building landing strips and providing communication infrastructure, is work that is better done by outside specialized professionals and organizations rather than being one more non-specialized task for people who are there to fight. It could also be argued that Halliburton was the right company at the right time to provide these services. If we're going to go to war with Iraq, we might as well do it well, right? And assuming we actually want to do a good job at liberating a country, rather than simply destroying it, we'd want to build new infrastructure that would last. And this was the corporation that owned the company that wrote up the original government-sponsored reports on how these services could be effectively and efficiently provided to a government entity in wartime by a private corporation. So doesn't it seem like they would be the proper choice for providing said services? Doesn't it seem like they would be the experts on exactly those types of services and how they should be optimally provided? One of the most frustrating things about conflicts of interest is that they are easy to assume, difficult to prove, and seemingly impossible to ever be 100% certain about, even in oneself. Is it possible that Dick Cheney worked with Halliburton to instigate a war in Iraq, taking advantage of multiple events, including 9-11, to forward those ambitions? Yeah, it's possible. Is it just as possible that he simply made use of his existing connections to try and provide the best possible outcomes for everyone involved, which is exactly what he should have done as a person in power tasked to make such decisions? Yeah, that's also quite possible. The truth could be one of these extremes or somewhere in between, and it's likely that we'll never know for sure what the truth actually is. And this uncertainty is the very same feeling that even Democratic Party loyalists can't help but feel about Obama and his Wall Street speaking gig, regardless of how different the situation seems to be. Yes, it is very likely that the former president is merely taking advantage of an opportunity that has arisen, because who among us would not do the same for $400,000? But there's a chance, and one that we can't completely discount, 
that he made past decisions, knowing that this opportunity, or an opportunity very much like it, would be on the horizon, so long as he didn't step over any serious lines. And there's a chance that he may not have even been conscious of that choice as he was making it. And this, by the way, is why some people, particularly political wonks and government transparency advocates, are concerned about the Trump administration's decision to do away with the Obama-era open visitor log policy at the White House. There was a piece in the New York Times about this recently, entitled, Persuasive Business Leaders Parade Through White House. This article was about the flurry of meetings with corporate leaders that have taken place within this administration, and how, in some ways, this is a positive shift in practice. It features quotes by people who know their industries really well, complaining that although Obama would speak to them and listen to their concerns, there was also an implication that they were being heard, but that the administration felt that they knew their stuff already, so they would take care of things their own way, regardless of what they were told by these visitors. In contrast, apparently, Trump and his people are not just listening, but also periodically doing complete 180s on the subject at hand after being presented with new information. And this access has changed the composition of the totem pole of power in the executive branch. From that article, quote, nearly 300 executives have visited the White House this year, according to a New York Times tabulation, an open-door policy that is a sharp break with the Obama administration and puts corporate chieftains on par with senior lawmakers in the pecking order of who has influence in Washington, end quote. I mentioned the concerns about the openness, or lack thereof, of the logbook of who's visiting the White House. The rationale for this instance of transparency under Obama was to show the public who was visiting the White House and who got FaceTime with the president or his staff so that the public and the press, who were more likely to keep track of such things, could then draw lines between these meetings and other things that happened later. If Trump decides to, for instance, help get an oil pipeline built, despite all the conflict and confrontation around such a project, it might help explain the broader story if we know that a representative from the oil company wanting to build that pipeline met with Trump at a politically prudent moment. That said, as argued in a recent Atlantic article entitled why the White House's secrecy over visitor logs isn't a crisis. The Obama-era policy was not a slam dunk for transparency either. There were all kinds of privacy and security-related exceptions to that rule. And the author of that piece also mentions the issue of what's called too much information, too little context, meaning you can read a lot into the fact that the president met with a given individual, but not know a thing about what they spoke of. So it's possible that the tiny bit of info you have could actually lead you further from the broader truth than if you didn't have that small bit of contextless data. Now that said, this doesn't ameliorate the need for transparency, nor imply that there's no reason to seek more of it. I think there are wonderful reasons to expose this president in particular to new ideas from informed people, and because of his incredibly numerous conflicts of interest related to his business and familial relations, it's truly stunning, really, just how many conflicts of interest there are, frankly. It's prudent that we have as much contextual information as possible to better understand why he makes the decisions that he makes. The president, in a lot of ways, has the power to fleece the United States for all that it's worth. And Donald Trump seems to have the personality traits that indicate doing so would not be out of character. It's important that we not jump to conclusions and that we do wait for reliable data. But that also means we should maintain and improve as many data-gathering sources as possible to make sure that the data is collected and becomes available. And that's prudent outside of politics as well. Trump and politicians are not the only hotspots for potential conflicts of interest. News organizations, for instance, are uniquely positioned to have conflicts of interest. This is why, almost always, Legitimate news sources will cite their conflicts in the body of an article in which a mention of the conflicting circumstances arise. 
A journalist who is reporting on something that happened at a Disney-owned theme park, for example, might indicate that they previously worked for ABC, a division of the Disney-ABC television group. This conflict might not be directly relevant, but it allows the reader to view the contents of that article through the lens of a potential conflict, which as a result reduces the chances of the journalist obscuring a possible bias they might accidentally or intentionally slip into their writing. Sometimes potential journalistic conflicts of interest are much bigger and more distant from the writer-reader relationship, but are still arguably relevant to what's being reported. When Jeff Bezos, founder and CEO of Amazon, bought the Washington Post in 2013, there was a great deal of concern that the news entity would be thenceforth unable to report reliably on Amazon, as any negative press could result in their funding being cut or a journalist's head rolling. Further, although it was Bezos himself who bought the post, the company he heads, Amazon, runs a service called Amazon Web Services, or AWS, which is essentially super flexible computing power that is used to host websites and apps, cloud computing on demand. This and other services offered by Amazon complicate matters for the Washington Post because the CIA, among hundreds of other government agencies from countries around the world, are customers of AWS. They use those cloud computing services. Now, consequently, it's no big stretch to wonder if the Post would be compelled, either covertly or overtly, to go easy on their reporting when it comes to the CIA or these other agencies. The initial contract with the CIA back in 2013 was $600 million. And since then, AWS has built a separate system for intelligence agencies who want to use on-demand cloud services, while also having the ability to look under the hood and perform security audits and things like that. Now, this has, by all indications, been a wonderful relationship for both these government organizations and Amazon. And as a consequence, some commentators have wondered if it might slant the Bezos-owned papers' coverage of these agencies. There have not been any questionable cases of coverage thus far that should have been done that weren't or that should have been done in a certain way, but in which they you know, treated the CIA with kid gloves, at least not that I could find evidence of, but the worry is still there. Even if there's no concrete rationale, for such concerns, no evidence that they would do that, the concerns themselves become a variable in the calculations of readers and potential investors who become aware of these conflicts. One step further away from even that multi-node deep state web of a conflict is the one that seems to exist between CNN and Donald Trump. There was a piece in the New York Times Magazine in early April entitled, CNN Had a Problem, Donald Trump Solved It. And in this piece, they unfurl the story of Jeff Zucker, the president of CNN Worldwide. And they describe his rise from a 20-something executive producer of the Today Show to later running CNN, which was the world's first ever 24-hour news network, and it continues to be that today. But despite being the first of a network type that became a great big deal in the modern world, the network has struggled to find itself in recent years, as Fox has staked out its claim as a friendly home for conservatives while MSNBC plotted out real estate as the same, approximately, for the left. CNN eventually became the home of constant breaking news in all caps events, but it didn't really come to its full modern iteration until Trump stepped onto the political stage. As soon as Donald Trump declared his intention to run for president, it was relatively easy for Zucker to orchestrate an ongoing storyline of heroes and villains, but mostly villains. And he turned non-events into events, and he hired Trump employees to work for the network as editorialists, essentially paying them to repeat the party line on air and to shout at people who had a different party line that they wanted to recite. So here we have a situation in which CNN has become essentially dependent on Donald Trump and his administration for their ratings because they've set him up as an arch nemesis to try to attack while also using his own administration as combatants 
in on-air brawls that they pitch between political parties. And because of that, in a very real way, CNN's economic existence is dependent on Trump continuing to be in the public sphere and in the public eye. Now, does this reality influence the decisions that Zucker and other people in influential positions at CNN make about what they report and how they report it and when they report it? And further, does this business model as a whole present its own broader conflict of interest? Have they become beholden to conflict and drama and all caps breaking news events to the exclusion of all else? I personally try to avoid watching CNN-style commentator ramblings or cable news-style debate scrums where talking heads yell at each other for seemingly no reason. But these types of news entertainment spectacles are common enough that you can't help but notice them from time to time. And it strikes me that you're never surprised when you watch one of these throwdowns. Based on the associations and professions and the leanings of the talking heads, you know what they're going to say ahead of time. The only possible surprise is if one of them maybe flubbed their lines or are outmaneuvered in some way by someone else on screen in the debate sense, rather than the philosophical or practical sense. So you might see someone get angry or emotional. You might see someone make a point that seems to defeat another person's point in the moment, but you're unlikely to hear anything new. You might as well just read the press release. It's all just well-rehearsed talking points, repeated endlessly, each hoping to be the last thing that is heard by a particular audience segment, and as a result, becoming the current opinion held by that audience segment. What I think would be interesting is if we used the chirons, those little graphics that are displayed at the bottom of the screen when someone is talking, which usually tell the person's name and their profession, if we instead used that space to declare their affiliations, and their conflicts of interest. So when someone from the oil industry, or a representative from a PR firm that works for the fossil fuel industry, or a scientist whose work is funded by the fossil fuel industry, is shown on screen, that Chiron would say something like, this person would lose their job if they failed to support the fossil fuel industry. Because that's true, isn't it? And we listen to these people talk trying to convince us of their stance, and we listen as if they're just normal people with opinions that they came up with in isolation. But we ignore the fact that this is a stance that they are compelled by many forces to argue for. Maybe it's a stance that they also personally, on a deep philosophical level, hold. And maybe that scientist is merely taking whatever money she can from whatever source will offer it, because she's beholden to finding more facts, not to supporting the oil industry. But we can't know that, and neither can she, not 100%. And as a result, it's in the public's best interest, I think, to be reminded that there is a potential conflict here. There's a great quote that's attributed to the writer Upton Sinclair that I think is relevant here. It goes like this, quote, It is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it, end quote. I think we should be reminded whose salaries are paid by whom, especially in situations in which that information is relevant to what those people are saying and how they're trying to shape the conversation around a given topic. This is a good moment to reiterate that conflicts of interest do not imply that there is absolutely impropriety taking place, but rather that there is the possibility of impropriety. From Wikipedia, quote, The presence of a conflict of interest is independent of the occurrence of impropriety. Therefore, a conflict of interest can be discovered and voluntarily diffused before any corruption occurs. A conflict of interest exists if the circumstances are reasonably believed, on the basis of past experience and objective evidence, to create a risk that a decision may be unduly influenced by other secondary interests, and not on whether a particular individual is actually influenced by a secondary interest, end quote. And that's why I believe cable news shows, debates, and conversations might be moderately more valuable if we divulged the strings connected to all the people who are representing various points of view on them. And this is why the Obama administration's policy of transparency 
when it came to visitor logs for the White House was a prudent move, even if it didn't necessarily provide any independently useful information. It helped diffuse the perception of conflicts of interest, which politically makes a whole lot of sense if you're trying to demonstrate honest dealings to the public. It was a move that was symbolically meaningful, more than practically meaningful, but meaningful it was, and it was removed. Let's take a look at this topic from a slightly different angle, because if I'm being honest, politics is low-hanging fruit when it comes to conflicts of interest. These are people who we expect to behave in a certain way, and ostensibly for the greater good, and so when they fail to do that, it's all over the news. They are easy targets. But what about you and me, unelected everyday people who, due to technology that we have today, find ourselves with platforms from which to shout any message we might choose to amplify? Generally, what most people think of when they think of the phrase conflict of interest is some type of monetary compensation. Part of why Trump is such an easy target for this is that his perceived conflicts are very public and saturated in money and family relationships, the latter of which is called nepotism. Other politicians, like the aforementioned former Vice President Dick Cheney, take a more obscure, meandering route, but they still make money from using their positions of influence, which is an example of what is called self-dealing. But we don't have a good term for non-monetary conflicts of interest, not if we want to get more specific and granular about it anyway. There's pump and dump, which relates to artificially inflating a stock price using influence and insider information before selling it off at a profit. There's outside employment in which your work with one entity causes your interest to come into conflict with your interests in another company. And you might notice that a lot of these terms overlap, and many people who have visible conflicts tend to fall into multiple categories. That is an error in our language, I think, not an indication that anyone who falls into multiple categories is some kind of criminal mastermind who's manipulating the system on multiple fronts. I'm sure that's the case some of the time, but probably not much of the time. But when we talk about non-monetary conflicts, we run into a linguistic wall. Think about it this way. If someone goes on a news network and promotes a philosophical concept while in a shouting match against representatives for, let's say, the oil interests for consistency, is that person any less influenced by outside forces than the oil industry representatives who are being paid to be there and say the things that they say? The latter's position in this debate is possibly shaped by their desire to keep earning a salary that directly or indirectly stems from the oil industries that they are discussing and defending. But the former has talking points that are shaped by non-monetary forces, maybe a lobbying group that's trying to keep the oil industry from building a pipeline through their land. And let's say for the sake of argument that this isn't a case where the against building side is trying to keep that land for like real estate or other monetary purposes, but rather because they believe that the oil pipeline will destroy their ecology or they're more broadly against the use of fossil fuels because they fear the long-term consequences of continued reliance on non-renewable, polluting sources of fuel. If we were to follow through with my idea about notifying the viewing public of the conflicts of interest embedded within this debate, and more specifically the conflicts that are hanging around the necks of those engaging in that debate, would we note this philosophical conflict as well? There's no money changing hands, and the person debating against the pipeline is not financially reliant on continuing to have his opponents there to argue these points in the same way that CNN is reliant on Trump being Trump for ratings. But this imaginary debater of ours is still not necessarily speaking only the truth or an unfiltered version of the truth. Their slant of the facts still support a cause separate from the cold recitation of numbers and other data points. These are still highly editorialized statements that they're making, and that editorial slant comes from somewhere. The issue that we run into here is that conflicts of interest are meant to help us see the distortion in our discourse, to show us the lens that each person may be using to warp whatever it is that they're talking about. This doesn't mean that they're necessarily using that lens all the time, or necessarily at all, but it's intended to allow us to be aware of the lens so we can work that into our math 
when deciding who to trust and whose words we should take with a grain of salt or a whole salt shaker. This knowledge of data warping works to a limited degree within certain segments of society. The press, for instance, often have their toes held to the fire, sometimes fairly and sometimes not. And it's a safe bet that anything you hear on Fox News, with few exceptions, will be shaped by the editorial board that guides the words that they use and the framing that they use for certain topics. And the same is true of most news entities, though generally with somewhat less slant, or at least on less ground-level topics. It's a fair criticism that almost all major news entities are pro-liberal democracy, for instance, and even quite often pro-globalism. But the more ground-level topics tend to be a little more sacred and maintain more of a balance overall, especially when compared to politicians and those who work for them, whose paychecks behoove them to toe the party line assiduously. This is because we're more aware of journalistic lenses than political ones quite often. Or at least we would react with more anger if we found that journalists were slanting things more frequently than they are. For you and me, though, posting things on Facebook and retweeting things on Twitter, it's less clear where personal opinion ends and conflict of interest begins. Some of us have employers, for instance, in a particularly politicized industry, and who might not take kindly to our bashing them on social media. There may be no actual company guidelines that say we can't say mean things about them or their industry on our personal social media accounts, but it stands to reason that many of us would be aware of at least the possibility of negative repercussions were we to voice negative opinions against those who sign our paychecks. As in all cases of conflicted interests, this doesn't mean that we are actually shaping what we say on social media based on where we work, or the conscious knowledge that saying the wrong thing or sharing the wrong article might get us fired or otherwise mistreated by our professional superiors. But unconsciously, there's a chance that it is. So should that chance shape how our words are presented? Should there be a social media chiron of some kind, along with the other information that's presented about who we are, that also tells our viewers, our audience, about our potential conflicts of this kind? My little brother, for instance, is a nuclear engineer. Should anything he shares be presented with a warning that whatever he says about the energy sector might be biased because of how he pays the rent? And if we were to develop such a system, how far back would we trace these potential conflicts? In the case of Dick Cheney, it makes sense that we might want to be aware that he brought business to a subsidiary of Halliburton before getting paid off by Halliburton. They're not technically the same companies, but the thread you have to trace backward to make that connection isn't exactly innocuous or illusory. It's a clear connection that doesn't require much data archaeology to see clearly. But what if you were arguing in favor of building an oil pipeline, and you didn't work for the oil industry, but you did graduate from a university that holds stock in the company that's building that pipeline? In this case, there'd be no clear monetary gain for you to be making that argument in favor of the pipeline, but your alma mater may stand to make a fortune should it be built. It's a trickier argument to make that there's a conflict of interest here. First, because the connections are less direct. The benefits for the person doing the arguing for the pipeline are harder to prove. But second, because we don't have the means of quantifying what value might be derived here. Maybe this person is super enthused about their old university and still follows their college sports teams and everything. And they're ultra tribal about where they came from. And to them, a victory for that university is a victory for them. Now, this is something that we might be able to quantify if we could measure how much money they gave to the school, or if relevant, how much they made from speaking at the school to the students or something like that. But if none of that is going on, if there's no direct monetary line to be drawn, we tend to completely ignore this flavor of potential conflict of interest, even if it ends up being a powerful influence on the person sharing their opinions about that pipeline which other people might then construe as being unbiased, unconflicted gospel truth. Now let's take that one step further, arguably to the point of absurdity, but there's a reason for that, I promise. Let's say that there's a debater on one of these cable news networks that is arguing in favor of harsher jail sentences for the aggressors in spousal abuse cases. Now let's further say that this person grew up in a household in which his mother was abused by his father. And it's estimated that 1 in 15 kids in the U.S. is exposed to domestic violence in their home while they're growing up. 
so that's not a huge leap to make, is this information that should be given to the public alongside his other arguments when he makes his case for changing the law? Is this a conflict of interest, or is it simply a life experience that has shaped his opinions and his general philosophy on everything? Now, I'm extrapolating on this topic in this way not to indicate that I think we should expand our definition of conflict of interest to the nth degree, but rather because I can't help but wonder if the way we adjudicate conflicts of interest might be outdated, or at the very least incomplete. There was a really enlightening article in the online magazine The Conversation, which was published back in 2012, as part of a larger series about transparency in medicine. And this piece was entitled, Don't Show Me the Money, The Dangers of Non-Financial Conflicts. This piece discusses some of the major non-pecuniary, which is a fancy way of saying non-financial, conflicts of interest that arise within the medical profession, and ways in which these issues might be brought up and handled. Two especially valuable points were raised in this article, and there were more points than that, but these two stood out to me as the most vital. The first is that we face an increased and increasing number of conflicts of interest in the modern world due to the way professions and professionals operate today, compared to even 100 years ago. From that piece, quote, The chance of dualities, multiplicities, and conflicts is increased by the great diversity of roles and responsibilities assumed by individuals in modern society. The existence of a conflict of interest is neither unusual nor shameful and doesn't reflect a psychological aberration. It's a straightforward, unavoidable fact that we must accept and recognize. End quote. And the second was more of an implied point that the article didn't put words to, but which seemed evident based on the examples that were given as to what such conflicts of interest might look like within the medical field and how they might be ameliorated. One example goes like this, quote, a doctor working as both a clinician and a researcher encounters a conflict between the demands of science and clinical care. She recognizes her conflicting interests, declares them, and with the help of an ethics committee, entrusts the job of recruiting research participants to an independent assistant, end quote. And another similar example, quote, a surgeon involved in developing a new operation that may not only improve clinical practice, but also enhance his personal reputation and standing, recognizes he is vulnerable to errors owing to his duality of interests. To protect both himself and his patients, he engages in discussion with colleagues who agree to help guide him in cases where there might be uncertainty about the role of the new procedure, end quote. What stands out to me about these examples, and the others presented in the article, is that the recognition of these conflicts and the proposed solutions to them all require a great deal of self-awareness and intellectual openness and vulnerability, maybe even a heroic amount of those things. How many of us, I wonder, would be willing to extract ourselves from the decision-making body that is determining how to write legislation about the use of embryonic stem cells in scientific research, because we know that our religious convictions would require that we oppose their use, regardless of any arguments to the contrary. To remove ourselves from this conflicted position of authority would necessitate that we were capable of great feats of metacognition, not just an awareness of our own biases and tendencies, but also an awareness of how these lenses through which we view the world will warp our perception, and how that warping might impugn upon the neutrality required for the decision in question. This would be an intellectually mature act that I'm not sure many of us could manage, and part of the reason is that a substantial part of who we are is shaped by those very lenses, those religious convictions, those philosophies. They're not just flags to wave around, they are hard-held beliefs that by many estimations, if followed to their natural apex, would cause a believer to make use of their position of influence when it comes to the use of embryonic stem cells to slant the decision in favor of those beliefs. To do otherwise, it could be argued, would be to prioritize one's profession, and in this case the pursuit of knowledge and scientific progress, over one's own view of how the universe operates, or at the very least how one should operate as a spiritual being within the universe. To trace that idea back to the beginning, what politician is not 
shaped by some sense of overarching morality. Who does not have a lens or a series of lenses through which they view the world? Aren't all politicians and all of us weighed down by these lenses that we carry? Isn't that what makes us us? And if that is indeed the case, as it seems to be, how do we separate the harmful conflicts from those that are more fundamental to who we are, to our character? And what if, for someone, a conflict that for most of us would be harmful and outside the acceptable is actually foundational? For instance, what if we decided that financial conflicts are the wrong type of conflict of interest and should therefore be punishable? But then we try to apply that standard to someone for whom money is actually everything, is their entire reason for being. It's their religion for all intents and purposes. To them, the pursuit of money might be just as vital as the pursuit of happiness or well-being for anyone else. This is a particularly vital question right now, partly because of who we have in the White House, but also because many of us have been brought up in a world in which money is a stand-in for all types of value. It's ostensibly the universal metric against which everything else is measured. Even for those of us who don't chase money with the same gusto as the Donald Trumps of the world, currency does represent power. It represents the ability to change things. In our minds, to change things for the better, whether that better simply means us having more stuff and power on a personal level, or whether that represents something more utilitarian, with the power being used to improve some aspect of society that we care about or helping some group of people that we've decided it is our duty to help and support. Any conversation about conflicts of interest, I think, must eventually come around to the concept of motive. A motive is the rationale behind doing something. And I like to think about this word in terms of motive power, the force that causes something to move. A 19th century train's motive power was a steam engine. A person's motive power are the beliefs that propel her forward, that keep her moving, and that intellectually empower her to do things. Our motives are not always obvious, even to ourselves. What powers us, what keeps us getting out of bed every morning, isn't always what it seems to be. It may seem that it's the coal that's being shoveled into the boiler that provides power to the train, but in reality, it's the heat from burning the coal that boils the water into steam, which in turn pumps the pistons, which in turn spin the wheels. There are layers when we look at motive power, and sometimes those layers obscure the truth of what keeps us going. For many of us, I think, the motive that we express, both internally and externally, for doing the things we do isn't true, or at least it's not complete. And this concealment isn't an act of malice or obstruction but rather just part of a story that we tell ourselves because others have told us similar stories. We're not hating another group because it makes us feel superior. We're doing it for their own good to show them a better way. We're not going to war to solidify our political and economic dominance. We're doing it to liberate this group that we have never shown any indication of caring about in the past. I'm not hindering the scientific community's ability to pursue research that uses embryonic stem cells because of my religious convictions. I'm doing it because it is clearly the correct moral thing to do. So what if my idea of morality is shaped by those same religious convictions? At the moment, we spend a lot more time questioning money-linked implied conflicts of interests rather than questioning the fundamental assumptions of a person's motives. It's easier to get the press to run a story about money that may or may not have influenced a president's decisions than to get them to discuss the potential flaws in that same president's underlying value system and whether or not that system will cause them to make decisions that are negative or positive for certain groups of people. With the communication channels and economic structures that we have set up, the quicker, dirtier, more scandalous stories are a lot more likely to go viral, while the calm, non-shouty, extended explorations of the lenses that people carry and through which they view the world, are more likely to be backburnered or never published at all. This is partly because those stories are more complex, partly because our publishing and broadcast industries are not optimized for those sorts of stories, and partly because we've been primed to soak up and discuss the salacious, not to question fundamental value systems. And this, like most things, 
comes with both pros and cons. It's probably good that we don't automatically lump people together based on broad labels and group affiliations, because not all people of a given religion interpret their creed the same way. Not all religious scientists will allow their religion to influence their work, even unconsciously, and not all conservative lawmakers will allow their personal political predispositions to sway their judgment of what is a moral legislative act. On the other hand, being capable of discussing these underpinnings of human character, the fundamental forces that make us who we are and make everyone else who they are, will probably be necessary if we want to have a complete rational and productive discussion about which influences our potential conflicts and which are merely the materials that make us who we are. To do this well, we will need more transparency when it comes to some things, more societal liberty to discuss subjects that are currently taboo, and more third-party non-partisan bodies that can help make difficult calls on whether or not someone has been unduly influenced to the point that they shouldn't be the ones making certain choices. That is the societal level shift that would probably be necessary. On a personal level, as I already mentioned, we'll need to be increasingly self-aware and capable of making meta-judgments about ourselves. And ideally, we'll come to see this capability of looking at oneself from a mental distance and the ability to judge one's motives empirically as not just rare, but noble to be self-aware enough to remove yourself from a decision-making position because you know that you will unduly sway the decision being made and because you have enough respect for the process to not want to risk that, should be seen as an honorable decision, not something indicative of scandal. It most ideally would be seen as a decision worthy of respect, and very importantly, it will be seen that way no matter who it is making that self-judgment. Let's Know Things is a listener-supported show. If you are enjoying the show, consider stopping by letsknowthings.com and clicking on the Contribute page. There you will find a bunch of different ways that you can help support the show, including some that you're probably familiar with, heading over to iTunes and leaving a review or sharing the show with a friend, contributing via PayPal or Venmo, and then some that are a little bit more obscure, like using my Amazon link to do your shopping online, which then gives me a percentage of the sale while not adding anything to your cost. Every single contribution is appreciated, whatever shape it might take. A huge thanks to everyone who has already contributed in some way already, and thank you in advance if you are considering doing so moving forward. You can also support the show and my work by purchasing one of my books. If you go to colin.io, you can find a complete list of the books that I've written, and I have a new book that just came out last week on May 1st called Becoming Who We Need to Be. It's a collection of essays, and if you dig this podcast, you will very likely dig this book as well. It is very similar in topic and tone. And another great way to help support the show is to check out our sponsors. The first sponsor is Audible. If you go to audibletrial.com LKT, you will receive a free month of Audible and a free audiobook from their collection of your choice. And there are a lot of books in that collection. So if you don't already have one in mind, might I suggest From Bacteria to Bach and Back by Daniel C. Dennett. And I don't want to say too much about this book ahead of time. I don't, I don't want to ruin it. There's a lot of big ideas here, and I feel like giving any of them away out of context would be a misdeed if you're planning on reading the book. But essentially, it tackles the concept of the evolution of the mind and it approaches it from a very interesting perspective and touches on topics like consciousness as an evolutionarily beneficial illusion. And Dennett is willing to address somewhat taboo or politically incorrect topics, which to me is a benefit when you're talking about these types of topics. We don't want to go out of our way to offend anybody, but we also don't want to be too precious when it comes to things that we know to be scientifically true. But if you enjoy thinking about topics like evolution and consciousness and automation and algorithms and things of that nature. From Bacteria to Bach and Back is a good read. If nothing else, it gives you some very interesting perspectives to think about and to add to your existing thought catalog on those subjects. 
Again, if you go to audibletrial.com LKT, you can get that book or any other book from Audible's catalog while also helping contribute to the show. And the other sponsor is HostGator, the hosting company that I've used for many years for all of my website and other online needs. If you go to hostgator.com LKT, you will receive a substantial discount off of their already quite reasonable prices. And they have everything from the smaller packages that are meant for somebody running a single blog all the way up to great big sophisticated packages for people wanting to run an online empire. Using this link is a good idea by itself just to get those discounts, but it also, as a byproduct, helps support the show, and I appreciate it. HostGator.com LKT. If you want to find out more about me and my work, you can go to colin.io. If you'd like to view the show notes for this episode and every episode, you can go to letsnotethings.com. And while there, you can sign up for the free newsletter that goes out every Monday. That is essentially just a very streamlined email that contains links to interesting things. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find me on pretty much every social network at Colin is my name. Thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.